You're listening to the Battle Ready Podcast. My name is Aaron McManus, and I'm here with my dad, Erwin Raphael McManus. It's good to be here today. It's been an interesting day already. It has been an interesting day. We had a bit of a hectic morning, some some um, some family stuff. Nothing bad, just a little, little, little just, shaking for us, but we'll yeah, be okay. We're good. Everyone's good now. Well, you're also waiting for feedback to yes. make sure everybody's good. Yes. So... Um, if you can, if you can take the time, maybe just um, give a little prayer. Okay, here we go. We've got some good things. Well, we also, today, we do is uh, you have programmed in my mind that when I don't see your middle name on something, I get mad. Yes, I just saw an article coming out without my middle name, and I sent a text going, "You didn't put my real name in there," because to me, it's not my yes. middle name. My my it's your whole name, it's your is name. my name. Yes, it's your name, and yes. now. I actually, we actually need to send that whenever we do things that that is, that's like a thing. Mm-hmm. It is a thing. It's like Madonna. Whatever I mean, her rest of her name is, is never there. Well, to me, it's like you wouldn't do Edgar Poe. You do Edgar, Edgar Allan Poe. Poe. It's Erwin right. Raphael McManus. You, you know, they're, they're just so Get it right. And we have merch out. We have merch. I'm huh? wearing the hoodie. I'm wearing the sweatpants. You're wearing the sweats. We got to run this part of it maybe at the top. Mm-hmm. We have merch. You can go Your, your to... mom saw my sweats today and she said, oh, well, what are those? And, and I said, they're, they're our battle ready sweats. She goes, how come I don't have a pair? And I said, well, these were actually yours, but I, I didn't sold. give them to you. <laughs> so <laughs> I kept them. <laughs> you could check out the merch. It's online. You can go to the Instagram. It has the link in the bio. It's the top. You can also go, I think it's erwinmcmanus.com slash shop. We're getting our own website. We're doing things. Well, okay, for, yeah. here we go. We got some questions. I posted a thing on Instagram. So we thought today we would do Q&A. Do a little Q&A with the people with you. Get the if you're listening, they want. <laughs> if you're watching, <laughs> a little shout out to Jay. We're doing a question and answer with you. All right. You so know how I fell asleep last night? How I fell asleep listening to an Audible book. This is not an ad. Mm-hmm. Called The Alchemist. Well, my favorite book of all time, really. And I read it when I should have been reading other things in high school, but I read that, and and I really enjoyed it. And so I was just thinking, I was like, I need something to listen to while I fall asleep. It's and a beautiful I, fable. So I got The Alchemist. That's so good. But someone had a great question. Um, I think his name was Jake. Yeah, his name was Jake. I'm looking at it right here. More discussion on your dad's books and why Wide Awake is his most underrated work. Jake, I'm kind of interested to know how you determined that Wide Awake is my most underrated work. How did you know, Jake? <laughs> How did you know? And, um, it certainly is the book I would most underrate. You felt like Wide Awake was done dirty. <laughs> yeah, so maybe I can give you a little background just for a moment. Sure. Um, I wrote Wide Awake. Subtitle. What's the subtitle? Um, don't sleep through don't your dreams. Don't sleep through your dreams. Yeah, it was and, a test. It was a test. And I, I remember exactly where Mosaic was meeting at the time. We are meeting at a, uh, under a tent. Under a tent in um, Los Feliz behind. Oh, I remember. Is it like the Best Buy or something like that? The Best Buy over there. Yeah, it was a pretty beautiful location yeah. anyways. And a meeting in a location. And um, I went ahead and let my publisher know and my agent know that that would be my last book. With them? Well, I said uh, really most likely ever in the Christian world again. Oh, you thought it was over. I thought it was done. And... My publisher was upset Thanks, that bro. I wouldn't re-sign, and it, it, that it was, was Kevin, by the way. Thanks, <laughs> Thank Kevin. You so much, Kevin. Oh, Kev. And no, no, it's fine. 
And it was the last book in my contract. My agent thought I was leaving for another agent, which I was not. I just, I, I took a six-year hiatus after I wrote that book from six writing years. books. And, uh, and never thinking I would write a, another book um, of that kind were... again. And um, never, you know, had that breakthrough book out or breakout book the way that, you know, I hoped or that my publishers had hoped. I mean, my books did well, but um, a lot of, you know, Christian books would just break out and sell millions and millions of copies. And, right. and my books were always more niche to a particular um, audience. And, and so with Wide Awake, I agreed to do it the publisher's way. They wanted me to just put a lot of Bible in there. And I, they told me over and over again that I needed to write more low-hanging fruit in terms of things that were more accessible. Yeah, it's really interesting um, the, the way publishers talk about you. Yeah, and, and me. They they and, think we're yeah. dumb. Maybe sometimes I am. <laughs> but they really do. It's pretty crazy the way they talk about people. Yeah. Not the publisher with now, but a lot of the no. Christian publishers. I've Well, they think the reader is dumb. Yeah, yeah. They treat them like they're dumb. Yeah, and and so that was a part of the challenge and so they said, "Look, you just need to add a lot more Bible because if you add a lot more Bible, um you know, Christians will read it because it's more of a Bible study. And I always use the scriptures, but I don't just put large passages in it to make it so obvious and concrete and linear and, di you know, it's We need to really re-release that book. I do. It's probably one of the most important books I've ever written because it really gives a person a, the, not only a process, but the process I always used to make my dreams into a reality. And so the process is a legitimate process. And they, um, when they found that I wasn't rewriting, they just didn't even edit the book. They just sent the book out. I stopped fighting them on it to get it to where I wanted to be and to have it just feel to the way the I wanted to. Just get the book out and get it done. And, um, and it, it had hundreds and hundreds of typos and editorial mistakes. And, um, Which is not like you. It's not like me at all. And uh, I just felt like they threw the book out and then there was no marketing, no publicity. There was no, there's, there, you know, it was just, um, I felt like the book got thrown to the curb. So I was really sad. And I've tried to buy the book back ever since because I never want anything out there that doesn't match the quality of which I demand of myself because I wanted to refine it, re-edit um, it, and then put it back out to it the world. It back to you? Um, for an immense amount of money, which I cannot afford. <laughs> and, uh, and then, so six years later, I wrote The Artisan's Soul, which is really the precursor of Wide Awake. And so if you read The Artisan's Soul, you should then follow it up with Wide Awake. And I would just love to be able to refine the book. The content is really powerful. I just uh, would like to add a more poetic feel to the book um, than, um, than the way it, it is presently. But so, aren't you kind of yeah. glad it didn't do that well? Because if it had done well, you would have probably been more mad. That's true. If it had done well... Um, like, you're right. They I, were wrong. I was right, and they were wrong. And they have come back years later and, and told my agent and other people that they just didn't know what to do with my thinking because it didn't match the contemporary thinking of the time. And, and that was the interesting yeah. thing was that it, it really wasn't the reader that was dumb. It was... The people in the room. No, it's not, it. it's not that. It's that publishing is about sales. It's not really about content. Right. Like like um, so many things, though. Yeah. I'm just trying to be a little fire starter today. Uh, and, you know, hopefully so content. There's so many great – sorry. I know you're really trying to go deep. Yeah. There's so many great people in the publishing industry. Yes. And, and you know what? I, I do think that the last three books you've written and put out, you've been really blessed with great people. 
mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, no, I've had some wonderful people along the way. and uh, But it's always a negotiation of what you feel you should write and what they feel will sell. For sure. And and there's, I don't know if there's ever a place where you you don't feel like you're selling a little bit of your soul when you're publishing with a publisher. Right. It's always a challenge. And I think that's where people who are super idealistic as artists and say, well, you know, I'm never going to um, compromise my art or anything like that. Um, it's going to be really, really hard for you to make a living. Yeah. And because a part of the a part of the power of working with a publisher is is actually the negotiation process where you have to figure out what is it you have to offer the world that the world actually wants. And 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 so I do actually appreciate that part of it. But I'm sort of a I thought about this for a long time about moving to self-publishing. After I'm done with this contract, I thought about it after the last contract and the contract before usually my agent talks me out of it. Yeah. But a lot of it is I just want at this time I write to to write what I want rather than what m- my publishers think some audience wants. And um, yeah, and so I would love to be able to take Wide Awake and refine it and and um, and re-release it because I think it's a really beautiful and um, meaningful book that matters to me. I've always fought Thank you for you, the question. I've always yeah. fought you on it. Thank you, Jake, for the question. Because I don't really believe in going back and fixing things. I would just really believe in creating new content. Mm-hmm. We had to sit down five years ago or so, and I was like, stop fixing all the old things. Yeah, but see, to me, the old things are not um, old. Um, they're, to me, old implies irrelevance or no longer meaningful to this moment. And if I had something I thought was no longer meaningful to this moment, I would let it go. Yeah. But I, when I feel like something is timeless and can actually help people 50 years from now or 100 years from now, I want it to be the best it can be still. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a great question. Thank you, Jake. While you're looking for a question, I have a quick thought about the NCAA tournament, March Madness. Uh, NCAA. NCAA oh. March Madness tournament about why so many underdogs are are beating um, the ranked teams. Yeah. You're... Our Tar Heels got taken out in the first two seconds of the tournament. Yeah, and that wasn't too much of an upset because they were an eight, and I think it was Wisconsin was a nine, so those two teams are basically evenly matched. Um, but there are quite a few upsets that are pretty dramatic, and and quite a few that almost happen that uh, teams have just um, slid by barely. And I started thinking about how last year's tournament was canceled, and all these teams have been working in the context of a pandemic and quarantine and without fans. And uh, and I actually think that there's a difference in the middle of heightened crisis between can't lose and have nothing to lose. The teams that are ranked in the top three, first, second, and third, they're the can't lose teams. They're the teams that are supposed to be so talented and so good that they can't lose. And the teams that are ranked 15, 16, 15, 14, 13, 11, you know, in that bottom half, they're the have nothing to lose teams. Right, right. And I think actually when you have heightened variables that change the the landscape of, of a sport, the nothing-to-lose teams have a real distinct advantage over the can't-lose teams because the can't-lose teams end up paralyzed. They end up um, a little more um, anxious and a little more, more insecure because if they lose, it's a terrible look. And so they're, they're coming on that court with, with this can't-lose kind of framework of you're not supposed to lose. 
you're supposed to win. You're more talented. You're more gifted. Uh, you have some of the top-rated four-star athletes in, in America. And the other teams come in with, we have nothing to lose. Yeah. And no fans, great. You know, guess what? You know. Yeah, who did ORU beat? Um, Was it OSU? No. Who did ORU beat, Brian? Yeah, I got the bracket up right now. Oral Roberts. Yeah, Oral they Roberts. beat Ohio State. Uh, they beat Florida, yeah. They beat Florida. Florida. And also Illinois lost. Yeah. Illinois, that was Chicago? Big, one of the biggest. Yeah, Loyola, Chicago. Loyola, Chicago. And Yikes. So I, I actually think— Pepperdine, where are you? And and frankly, in life, what I found yeah. is that when you're working from a can't-lose mentality, like um, I'm more talented, I'm more gifted, I'm more intelligent, you're actually less postured to deal with high risk and high failure than a, than a person comes in with— I've got nothing to lose. We see this a lot. I think this is a great concept to, to sit on and talk about for a little bit because we see this a lot with big organizations, organizations that were really cool when they were just big enough to have momentum, to build really interesting things and to push them out, right? Because you have a lot of small yeah. organizations that can create really cool things because they're so small. Then the moment they hit, they can't, they can't scale. Mm-hmm. They can't keep it going, yeah. right? And you find that so many times. Like one thing that I do find that is brilliant about, you know, Mosaic that you've built over 25 years is that even though it had a, a, a large reputation, it was never too big to change. Yeah, we've never had a can't lose mentality. We also felt like we may not exist next year. Yeah. And so we've always had a we have nothing to lose kind of mentality. Let's yeah. just go out there and do everything we can and risk and be creative and put it all on the line. And if we were 10,000, 15,000 people, 20,000 people, we would still have the same mentality. Yeah, you would probably absolutely. have the same mentality. Yeah, because it is a mindset that you use in life. And, and, I, and I can genuinely say that throughout my life, I've never entered into anything thinking I can't lose. I've never entered into, I'm more talented, I'm more gifted, uh, the, the, the victory is in the bag, I got this thing. Uh, I've always had this, I've got nothing to lose. So how do you, okay, so speak <laughs> you know? to a big organization. Yeah. How do you innovate again? Because I think a lot of times what ends up happening is by nature, large organizations start creating infrastructure and systems and boards and committees, mm-hmm. and then they're not able to make quick choices almost ever. Mm-hmm. Everything has to go to a board, to a committee, to a subcommittee, to this team, to these leaders, to, and then get you know up the ladder until the 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 moment has been passed, has been lost. So can you speak to big organizations and then speak to little organizations? Because I I often feel like the the smaller organization is is always at an advantage, even though they feel like there's no money, there's no financing, there's no team, there's all of these things. Yeah, so they ha- have nothing to lose. I'm not supposed to win, so I might as well just give it everything I've got. Right. The moment you're yeah. perceived as large, mm-hmm. there's are, there are different mountains you have to climb. Yeah. So can you speak to the, the large organization? Yeah, I, I think one of the interesting things is that when an entrepreneur starts a new company and it becomes a massive corporation and they retire, resign, or die, it usually gets replaced by a really conservative manager rather than another innovator. And so Steve one of the, Jobs to Tim Cook. Yeah, and, and it's not that they're not great, but usually what happens is the board's going, we need to compensate for the weaknesses of the entrepreneur with a CEO that has strengths that he didn't have. Yeah. And that, that's usually the death of the company. And I think what really should happen is the CEOs who are really innovators and entrepreneurs and pioneers, they need to create an office of the future. 
and they need to see themselves transitioning, not out of simply being CEO, but creating this new office of the future that's R&D, that's all the research development. Yeah. And there needs to be a significant amount of the money that goes into creating the new. That's high risk and um, and hopefully high reward. And so I, I, I think that's why a lot of times an outside um, perspective can really help. When you when you hire someone who helps you see your yourself and your organization yeah. um, that, where they have nothing to lose. Yeah. And, and it's one of the reasons a lot of times like consultants and coaches become really uh, critical is because really all they're doing is t- telling you what you would be telling someone else, but you can't see it when it's you. It's so I was I was sitting down with a good friend of mine this this last Friday. He came uh, up to L.A. and we sat and talked and we were here in the offices and then we went up to my house and um and um and it was really cool. It was really, really cool because. Mm-hmm. We were talking about both. We're both kind of in the weeds with our own projects. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's, it gets to a point where, you know, it's hard to talk about the thing you're working on and see it with a clear vision. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Especially when you're trying to innovate. Especially when you have certain things that are working for you that you don't want to work for you. Like w- when you become popular in the demographic that you did not want to be popular in. That is a problem. Mm-hmm. It gets to be a problem. <laughs> and I think that is the big issue, right? Sometimes we can't accept our own success because we don't like the kind of success that it is. Mm. Right? Yeah. Like uh, I think I think about people who get really well known building a certain specific company mm-hmm. and then they really do not like the company they built because it isn't cool. It doesn't necessarily bring them any street cred. But <laughs> I know a lot of pastors make... like that who started their churches and 10, 20 years later, they hate their churches and act like their churches are diametrically opposed to their values. And I would always tell them, that church is a complete reflection of you. They became who you are, and now suddenly you decide you don't want to be that person. So you can't despise your church because they basically trusted you and followed you and became you. Yeah. (laughs) And And, and we were talking a bit about how he, like, essentially, and he's he's my friend. I'm not going to say the company because I don't Mm want to put him on blast, but... He basically got kind of the reins to a new company, mm-hmm. and he's he has this one product that makes up like eighty to ninety percent of all of the business, but it is not that cool of a product, mm-hmm. and it isn't. <laughs> and his second most famous product, he he likes, but it's an old vintage product, mm-hmm. and he's like, I want to innovate the whole idea and the concept. And he's even talked to the the guy who started the company. It's mm-hmm. kind of gone through a few different people's hands before it got to theirs. And the, and the original guy is like, no, I always meant for this brand to be a future forward company. I just sold, you know, in the 90s and it just stopped innovating. You know, mm-hmm. I moved on to other things. Yeah. And so he's kind of in this place and I'm like, okay, so he can't because he works for people that own it. And so he can't give up the business that is making up 90 percent. It's one product <laughs> and it's kind of yeah. o- old feeling, you know. Yeah. And, and he can't get rid of that. But that's who he's. That's who his market is. Mm-hmm. So he's like now having to try to innovate inside of this new world. He's essentially having to create a, a new company yeah. and a new following inside of an old company. Yeah. And so like I think that's something though that we were talking about and I'm like, okay, you're so good at that. Because there's also another question that said, how did you bring – how did you constantly um, – where is it? How did you constantly reinvent Mosaic? How did your dad change the culture of Mosaic, changing organizational culture? And I'm like, okay, so how do you start a company within a company? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because we've had a company before. Yeah. We had bags. Mm-hmm. And we made the coolest, like, World War II, vintage military, these mm-hmm. amazing duffels, these amazing, like, medicine bags, mm-hmm. backpacks. And none of those sold as well as the iPad bag that we made. <laughs> it wasn't vintage. The iPad It case, was out of yeah. really cheap 
really not cheap, but like like yeah. like lower end mm-hmm. raw saddle leather, which was really cool, mm-hmm. but it was more low end product. Yeah. And iPhone like hip mm-hmm. carriers. <laughs> and we were and and that was selling like a million dollars a year. Yeah. <laughs> but we could not sell the like the beautiful pieces we were selling. We could in stores. We had them in Fred Siegel, we had them mm-hmm. in Barney's, but like they weren't selling like they the other things were. Mm-hmm. So how how do you what if when you're at that crossroads, how do you manage that? How do you reinvent yourself? How do you not have fear? Well, I mean, I think one thing, if you're at all an artist, you have to create some things just because they're expressions of something you love. And then you have to create things that actually pay the bills. And, you know, when you talk to people in the fashion industry, they just basically look, accessories pay the bills. Yeah. And so you need to be, create some really cool, beautiful accessories because that's what's going to sell and and pay the bills and if you want to so if you want to sell a three thousand dollar jacket you better sell some socks <laughs> you know? and, for sure uh, for because, sure um because not everyone can afford that jacket and if you really feel passionate about creating it you have to create other accessories right and so what i would say to anyone is you have to if you're going to run a company you cannot simply be the artist you also have to be the entrepreneur and if you're going to create something new and cutting edge and and uh, culture changing, you cannot just be the entrepreneur. You have to be the artist. It's really the combination of these two, and and that allows you to um, to keep innovating and creating. And one of the things is, I could say I didn't have to change the culture of mosaic because I started mosaic, but I still had to change the culture of mosaic because unless you're cloning humans, um, you're whatever humans you get are bringing culture with them. So no one, if, especially if you're, let's, if you're listening, you're a church planter or you're a pastor. Um, there or a is, business leader. Yeah, if you're starting a business from scratch, everything. There is no such thing as something that's purely from scratch because the moment you have people, they're bringing their old culture with them. Right. So you have to create an organizational culture that's more powerful than all the divergent cultures people, people are bringing in. So when you talk to a church planter and they say, well, you know, I have 300 people in the first year, and which is pretty amazing, or 500 yeah, people in the first yeah. year, I'm going, hey. hey, you think you have a new church, but you have an old church. Those are 500 Christians who have church experience and church history, and they're bringing all their experiences in, and they're going to fight to create their own culture there. And so you have to have values and envision that's so clear and so strong that it pulls people toward those. And rather than you getting pulled by all the, the values, it's kind of one of the funny things. And I just, in fact, I just photocopied this article, photocopied it, took photographs on my phone. Um, that photocopy, um, screenshot. A screenshot. Sorry. See, old school. And, uh, and well, I, have a, I have a follow up question. Yeah. How do you unify a group as a leader when there are differences of opinions in the group when you were leading? Also, a lot of some of these questions are like skipping vowels and like end of letters because they're just trying to fit it into the box. So yes, and it's and and one of the most difficult things you have to do as leaders, you have to be clear that not everyone's opinion matters the same. And I think a lot of times we try to be super egalitarian and go, oh, everyone has a voice. But the truth is, you should everyone should not have an equal voice in the creating of a new culture. Yeah, and yeah, I, I it hear, is actually a really bad. That's actually, that's the worst culture. It's actually a horrible culture. Yeah. And I know that doesn't make, necessarily make you feel good, no. but the reality is that not every voice, if every voice was heard, there would be no voice heard. Yeah. When when you have a, a culture where, quote, everyone's voice has input, the most destructive and negative people end up shaping the culture because yeah. they're the ones that refuse 
to not, quote, impact the culture. So here, listen to this. It says, the least free states in the United States— What is this? Where is this from? Um, this is just—I picked it up on the internet. Okay, but where? You're going to say where it's from. The internet doesn't— well, this like is science. Uh, this is from Fox News. Oh, gosh. Okay. Right. Oh, gosh. I know. I don't think I've ever quoted Fox News in my life. No, but they're always my, fun for like, they're like the drunk. But this caught people. my attention. It says the least free U.S. states um, are listed in, here are the bottom five. The least free state in America is New York. Okay. And then West Virginia, Alaska, California, and Vermont. What are they, what's, what are like the prerequisites? In terms of uh, quarantine, COVID regulations, you can't go to movies, can't eat in restaurants. Have to wear a mask. Have to keep six feet of separation. Uh, can't open up certain places. So California is on the top five. We're the worst. Oh, we're the worst. Wait, no, sorry. Say it again. Uh, At least the, in New York, the least uh, free is New York. Yes. And then West Virginia, Alaska, California, and Vermont. Okay, so we're four. So we're in the okay. bottom five. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then it gives us the who's the uh, most free. Um, I have the most free on here somewhere. Oh, here we go. Uh, the the freest five are Florida, New Hampshire. Tennessee, Texas, and Virginia. All right, so those are the five freest. All right, so they're talking about, and I think that this was interesting to me, California has a net loss of 190,000 people for the year. Like people leaving. Leaving California. New York had the most, um, the largest exodus as 458,000 people left the state. My goodness. Yeah. And uh, 250 moved in, so they had a, net, a complete loss of 203,567. So California and New York had about 200,000 people leave their states. The problem is that the five free estates attracted a net average of 270,000 people oh my from other states, while the bottom five saw a, a loss of 398,000. So here I am using it as an example because you have 400,000 people from the least free states moving to the five most free states. And most likely they will be the voting block that will try to change the culture of the five, five free states to implement regulations that they left from the five least free states. No, but it's fine because, that's because human the free people will um, free the old t states that were in bondage. No, no, you'll see this because if you do like demographic... Like um, there's a, there was also a great article that we talked about how, mm -hmm. I think it was on CNN actually, mm -hmm. was saying that, that the only way Republicans will lose California is if the Republicans mess up California, like mess up the election essentially. If they don't bring someone who's, who's, who's sharp somewhat and sharp and yeah. compelling, they're like, it is, we, he's a Newsom and Garcetti and the mayor of San Francisco handed the governorship to the Republicans. All right. I'm kidding. No, here's my point. What's um, your point? It's, it's long. The, no, no, no. You made this longer. <laughs> what I was saying was that the five, the five states and the five state shift is like a culture is in a church that people come into your church or come into your company and they bring certain values. And if you don't have very clear cultural values and vision, you will be overrun by the old values of people who have left bad companies to your good company, bad churches to your uh, healthier church. Yes. What's crazy is the article goes on to say that the amount of people each state got is like amounts to like one one seat in the house. So the voting power of that state will change based on the people who move there. Yeah. Wow. So it'll it'll be interesting to see if the people who move to the states will vote in alignment with what the state provided for them, or will start to try to shift the state 
to look like the state they left. I would say that more than half. Uh, Texas, I think, is interesting because I think mm-hmm. a lot of that is tech, tech yeah. movement. People are moving for Tesla. People are moving for mm-hmm. Google, Microsoft, a lot of things that are going on down there. I think Florida is different. I think it was a lot of New York conser- conservatives, New Yorker conservatives, New York conservatives mm-hmm. that were moving down to Miami, moving down to Palm Beach, Florida. Mm-hmm. And I think they're, they were kind of, they're from there and they're going back there. Because, you know, it was a place you wanted to end up maybe later in life, but now they want to actually have a place that fits how much they pay in rent and, like, have land or have more of a year-round and not be freezing. Whereas I think a lot of California is leaving to Texas or actually bring a lot of, like, a more liberal perspective where I think the New Yorkers are a lot of those guys are more conservative in there. In their voting. So to answer the question real specifically, the way you create a culture and the way you create a culture at Mosaic is that I was very clear that Mosaic wasn't for everyone. And and I, I know that sounds like it's counterintuitive because we're supposed to say, wait a minute, the church is for everyone. And but the truth is that that your church or your organization creates a filter the moment it begins to establish its culture. Um, let's for a church, the moment you choose your music, you're saying this church isn't f- for some people, it is for some people. The moment you choose the dress code, you're saying this church is for certain people and not for certain people. The Do moment, people have dress codes? Oh my goodness, you don't, you, you're just, is that you, a thing? it's good that you actually haven't traveled the United States. Huh? <laughs> I have traveled the United States, I just don't go to church and, I know, when I, I travel. I know, teasing. And, uh, <laughs> and so the moment you choose your language, the moment you choose your translation of the Bible, all those decisions become filters. And, and, you know, so the moment we became a church that focused on creativity and human uniqueness and, um, and our message was a message that really was hopeful and positive and it actually became a filter. So uh, a part of choosing Mosaic's culture and creating it was having a defined future in mind. Okay. Yeah. Let's go to the next one. How to have hard conversations with people who work for you and who you work for. I think communication is really key. Yeah. I think if if you don't, I think people, well, one thing I've found with younger people is they have a harder time communicating any type of conflict, hmm. right? So when you ask what's going on, how can I help? And, we, and you set up a lot of channels to like, hey, this is what's going on in my life. Hey, this mm-hmm. is, you know what I mean? Like you do three cues and you do your your daily goals and mm-hmm. we do our Monday Friday meetings. Um, I do find it harder for a lot of the younger, I think it's harder for the younger guys to, to maybe voice stuff that they have issues with. Mm-hmm. They would be more likely to leave and you know what I mean? Be like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm just not a part of whatever than to say, hey, can I change this? In the midst of COVID, Mm-hmm. A lot of people have transitioned. Some mm-hmm. people have come into LA from different campuses. People have come to, into LA from all over the world. Some of our people have left. Some key volunteers mm-hmm. aren't around anymore. A lot some of people of them, left LA. Some people don't live in LA. Some people yeah. don't necessarily align with the way we believe or handle things. And I think a lot of times is you have a lot of time to sit in the last year and think or not think or just to make decisions, right? And to move and to have change. And I think it's how do you bring – one is how do you have a conversation with people, but also how do you bring your own ideas about change? So I think a lot of times people will just leave if they don't like something rather than going, hey, this is something I see. How do I change this? How do we, how do we work on this? How do we adjust this? 
You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think bring a solution to the problem. There are different um, aspects of that question. I mean, a lot of the conflict has that has to be dealt with in life is personal, interpersonal, right? As opposed to like ideological and uh, like on big issues. And to me, the way that you create a healthy environment for criticism or critique or conflict is you create a positive culture. That if you have a negative culture, there never seems to be room to to deal with conflict because it's it all feels like conflict. And so it's really I assume that I'm going to have to have a negative conversation with everyone at some point. So I want to have a lot of positive conversations. And so I don't wait for things to inspire me or cue me to have positive conversations. So I think one of the things you should do as a leader is um, you need to say positive things and speak positive things in the lives of the people on your team so that when you have a negative conversation, they can't say, you only talk to me when something's wrong. Yeah. You know, really a person should be surprised you're having a negative conversation because you have so many positive conversations yeah. with them. Yeah. And I think the second thing is... Um, you should have the conversation when it's still about the issue, not about the person. If you wait a long time, it becomes about the person, not about the issue. And and so it's I think and the timeliness of it's really important because if you wait too long, it it, it almost comes out of bitterness than it does out of concern. Yeah, I I and I don't know. I actually do a forty eight hour thing mm-hmm. in my own processing because okay. I'm usually mad. <laughs> if it's a little like annoying thing I'm usually mad okay mm-hmm. this is annoying give myself half a day mm-hmm. and then okay now I want to think about how to solve this problem if it's a personal if it's like a character thing and I mean character thing being like if it's a continual lateness or continual messiness mm-hmm. or you know stuff where it's just yeah. more functional that I'm like if we just clean this area up we will be more effective mm-hmm. um, and then within 48 hours I you got to address the problem you know what I mean? Yeah. Because I think by the first day, I can seek advice. Do other Are other people seeing what I'm seeing? Mm-hmm. Meaning like, are my managers seeing what's going on mm-hmm. with some people on my team? Or is it just me? Or am I just being nitpicky? Or You know what I mean? And kind of can help you center your perspective. And then also just sit down and have a conversation. Hey, this is what I'm going through. You know? Or this is this is what I'm seeing in your life or in your work life, and can we make some adjustments? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times it's communication. A lot mm-hmm. of the issues is, hey, I'm having a hard time with this person, and I'm like, are you communicating with them? And oftentimes it's it's it comes down to, well, I I slacked them, and I I find this so often on team with team members, they will go to the least preferred method of communication, the least personal. Least personal, yeah. they'll go like if they text and FaceTime, they'll slack them. Okay. If they only slack them, they'll randomly call them and leave them a voice memo thing mm-hmm. on WhatsApp. Yeah. Brooke, have you ever received a negative text, slack, email from me? No, <laughs> <laughs> no. but you for sure probably have for me. <laughs> no, and do you think I've ever been upset with you? Oh, that has become clear over time, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I think that. What I try to a pattern in my life is you can do positive things through impersonal mechanisms like text or email or yeah, Slack. Yeah. But negative things should be you should you should take the time to give the person a call or talk to a person face to face. And and so sometimes it might take me a little bit longer because if it's a super intense negative conversation, it's definitely gonna be face to face. Because I want the person to to see that I'm not only angry. I want them to see that I still care about them and love them as a person. And you can't get that in a text. 
You can't feel. In attacks, all you feel is the fear of this criticism or critique. But when it's face-to-face, the person can also communicate affirmation and empathy, and I think that's really important. Yeah, I do too. I think, like I know I'm going to, when we get off of this pod mm-hmm. filming, I'm going to go have a chat with someone about communication because on I got a text from one of the one of like the the kind of executive level people on on your team. Hey, this is happening. Someone works on your team. Why didn't I get this before Friday at five? Mm-hmm. And now it's like seven p.m. and I'm having to make this call. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. You know, and we're we're very fluid. We work pretty, quite mm-hmm. often, and and there's not necessarily like like mm-hmm. solid times. You work a lot. We work a lot, and um. But the response was like, hey, I'm not working on this until Monday. Mm-hmm. And that was what maybe someone was mad. It's like, no, no, they're usually pretty open to adjust and do whatever. And then we got on the phone and I was like, okay, are you communicating this to the executive team that, that you need more time or you're not getting proper feedback? Because if you feel a certain way, feeling it isn't saying it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you shouldn't say everything you feel, but there should be a process of communication going, okay, look, if I need help, I've got to say it. Because mm-hmm. when we get to the deadline if I didn't ask for help, it's only on you or, or on me. And I, and I make this mistake all the time. You forgive me constantly. But if I asked for help, I gave proper feedback. I asked for proper feedback. I walked into your office. I set up an appointment. I called. I texted. I slacked. I emailed. I did everything. I voice memoed. It ain't on me anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I find that the place where really good employees mess up most is that they wait too long to try to solve a problem by themselves. Yes. Because yes. they don't, they feel like if they ask for help, they look incompetent. And so then they wait too long and then it becomes a, a challenge. It becomes a difficulty. Yeah. Yep. What are the questions we got? Okay. How do you deal with low self-worth? That's a really challenging question because low, sorth- low self-worth is so rooted in um, your childhood Mm. And things you probably experienced when you were young, and and trying to deal with a deficit of affirmation or self-esteem that uh, should have been developed in your earlier years, and something traumatized you, or something was deficient. Um, and and you know, and so I, I think probably like one of the first things is you you need to make sure that you begin to surround yourself with people who believe in you. Yeah, you, you know. And try to make sure that you don't create a self-destructive pattern of surrounding yourself with, with other people that who, has both low self-worth. Yeah. How do you how do you manage self-worth? Right. Like how much? Because one thing is like, how do you have friends that encourage you? Mm-hmm. And everyone needs encouragement. But how? When do we get to a point where we it's unhealthy encouragement? Or right? Like I'm starting to see like if it was on a scale. Yeah. What is a healthy amount of encouragement? What's a healthy amount of, you know, self-worth? Does that make sense? Yeah. Because I think it's it's one of those two things where it's like you can encourage people into catharsis, mm-hmm. right? Into a state where they think they're much better than they are. And you can also have too much, like, like you're so, like, I don't know how to explain this. Self-worth, if you have too little of it, it really is damaging right and if you have too much of it it's really egotistical so it's like how do you how do you keep like a level playing field like a good head on your shoulder how much is too much when is it enough like how do you manage that yeah i'm gonna say something probably unpopular and 
You know, you can well, process this any way God you want. Thank God it's you this time. Um, I think the only way to work out of a lack of self-worth is an increase in self-discipline. Okay. And so, that, you're, so you will find your own self-worth if you become more disciplined. Yeah, because as you become more self-disciplined, you'll be able to look at the disciplines in your life, and those disciplines will reaffirm the worth that you're searching for. It's so crazy because like, mm-hmm. I, I know that I will have moments where I feel so low, mm-hmm. and then I'll go on a run. Yeah. And I'll have forced myself to move, to be physical, to be active. Mm-hmm. And then I'll come back and be like, that was the that, that answered the question of why I'm feeling so down. Yeah. But then I so can quickly forget that just being active mm-hmm. or being disciplined reading yeah. or eating well mm-hmm. or making sure I go to sleep on time genuinely contribute to my overall perception of myself. Yeah. Because remember, self-worth is not something objective. It's something subjective. You know, your your feeling of a lack of self-worth is not rooted in reality. And, you know, and someone else may actually have a deep sense of self-worth who doesn't functionally or practically have more worth than you in anything in the world. You yeah. just don't feel like you're, you have worth. And so you have to create internal structures in your life that say, I'm not going to build my worth on how I feel. And, uh, and, you know, I know the answer is supposed to be because, of, you know, Jesus, you, you need to build your self-worth on what God says about you. But I don't want to, like, drop you into a cliche because that's what I read everywhere, that, you know, your, your self-worth is really supposed to be based on what God says about you. And, yes, that is actually true, but it doesn't always functionally help you get better. The, the thing that actually helps you get better is establishing some disciplines in your life that give you a solid base of going... This is what I'm doing to um, declare my worth for myself. You see, the problem with self-worth isn't that other people don't consider you worthy. The problem with self-worth is that you do not consider yourself worthy. And so you need to develop. To me, disciplines are saying, I'm important. See, when you take time to eat well, and you take time to exercise, and you take time to read, and you take time to make sure you're healthy, you're actually declaring to yourself, I'm worthy of this investment in my life. Discipline is an investment in you, and that will elevate your sense of self-worth. We've been going We've been going for quite some time, 43 minutes. Do you want to keep going? I mean, there's a lot of really good questions. So um, do we want to... Let's just see if there's one or two more good questions, and then we can... Um, I mean, there's a, a definitely a top... So, so not all of them are questions. I did say <laughs> topics as well. Yeah. Um, so... I, like as I'm reading them, I'm realizing some of these are just topic suggestions. Um, one of them was Asian hate, stopping Asian hate. Um, I responded to the person who was like, wait, can you rephrase that as a question? And I realized, oh, I did actually ask for topics. Okay, so yeah. it was a topic suggestion. Sure. Um, how do you address something that has been it, – it seems like 2020 and 2021 have brought up a lot of really important issues that maybe – America or society, culture as a, our culture as a whole, has has kind of shelved for a long time. Mm-hmm. Just kind of buried, you know, um, as a like a as a dirty history in our in our culture, in our history, in our, our country's history. And a lot of things now are coming to the surface. How do you contribute positively 
to something. Like stop Asian hate is obviously very obvious. Mm-hmm. Let's not hate anyone, right? Right. Let alone a specific group for what they look like. Yeah. But you know, we we're in LA. You live near Koreatown. Mm-hmm. Koreatown has a really heavy history of what happened in the riots. Mm-hmm. You know, in the yeah. '90s, and people were pillaging Korean grocery stores, Korean bookstores, Korean malls, everything, mm-hmm. right? And Koreatown's quite big in LA. Yeah, it's huge. It's much yeah. bigger than a lot of the other, like, yeah. you know, there's a Salvadorian town, it's about two yeah. blocks, you know? And we, we're proud of it. There's a pupuseria on there. <laughs> um, but Koreatown was like an iconic figure mm-hmm. in the 90s and they defended themselves and there's documentaries, there's books on it. And it was a pretty like violent time mm-hmm. in LA's history. Obviously now we're in a place where it feels like a lot of these moments in history are being relived. Mm-hmm. Um, with the internet and and you're seeing more live footage, more live response. Mm-hmm. How do we address this? Well, it, it's it's an interesting um, tension in our culture because uh, any, any thoughtful person would go, of course, we need to stop Asian hate. Right. And and I think any like deeply caring person would recognize that. Um, Ethnic minorities have had significant challenges in our society that have not been addressed very, very well. I mean, I did not learn about the Japanese internment camps during World War II until I was out of college. I never learned about it in junior high or yep. high school or college. Yeah, it's omitted from American history books. You guys that... are younger. Did, did they teach you that in high school, of the Japanese internment camps? And, um, and which is... Good to know, right? That you know the United States basically took property and freedom from the Japanese Americans and not from the German Americans, and so German Americans were infilt- were uh, were brought into the American military, and Japanese Americans were put into internment camps. I mean, we we have to recognize that our Euro um, European background or Anglo-Saxon American background has an effect on people who come from other ethnicities and other cultures. And so I don't think we should ignore that, and I think we should be aware of that. But at the same time, we're also in danger of throwing everything into an ethnic or racial category. See, sometimes I don't know if it's like hate directed toward Asians or hate directed toward uh, black Americans or hate directed toward Latinos, or is it just hate and and people are, are sick or evil or um, demented and... And they're killing people, and and well, I, I, you know, and because I had people asking me questions on both sides of this. I yeah. think the root of it, right, and yeah. I think the layer beneath or above it or beneath it or around it, as you start to like kind of peel away, what mm-hmm. is it exactly? Because it goes from Black Lives Matter to stop right. Asian hate to even Jesus loves you. Like our culture has this exclamation, all caps, even the battle ready. Everything I post is yeah. all caps all the time. Mm-hmm. That is our culture right now, yeah. and it's all for a soundbite. It's all, and I'm not, I'm not belittling the movements. That's not what yeah. I'm saying. I'm, I'm kind of grouping everything together. Going, our culture only responds to what is in all caps. Yeah, I can tell you myself. It's irritating to feel like if I'm not loud about whatever the moment's agenda is then I'm not caring and I'm irrelevant or I'm, you know. I mean, it, it was crazy. Negative. It hadn't been 24 hours mm-hmm. and you were, and we had a full-on conversation because mm-hmm. we were going to release the 
the dreamer coat that from yeah. from McManus, and I called you and was like, "Hey, look, there's some negative feedback mm-hmm. because you haven't addressed." And I had what's already going been on. responding to people even the night before, like privately, privately, yeah. But you hadn't like put a video out mm-hmm. on your Instagram addressing the Asian hate going mm-hmm. on in America. It does feel like the moment you don't talk about what people want to talk yeah. about or what people are, want you to talk about, you get immediately started getting canceled. Yeah, and there's a part of You shouldn't pay attention to this guy. so resistant to, oh. to being almost like forced to be woke, right? You know? It is very in- – it's a very in- – we've, yeah. beca- we've become a very interesting culture. Yeah. And then the moment I do post a video, I see several uh, white people going, uh, hey, don't be dragged into this – cultural narrative this is an asian hate this is you know right and i'm going well sometimes as a caucasian you need to make sure you're not tone deaf you need to make sure that you're not deaf to what needs to be talked about in that moment and and i do think there's an importance there but at the same time um we need to be careful to not almost like make um concerns trendy and, and that, I, I mean, I've cared about racial equality all of my life. Our, our, our church mosaic, we've been integrated for 30 years that I've been here. Uh, our church has for decades was dominantly Asian as a community. Yes. And, yes. and so when someone starts accusing me of not caring about the Asian community, I feel like, no, just because I'm not on trend, because I've cared about this for decades, doesn't make... In fact, it irritates me that people who are just in that moment caring about it, think that they're the the flagships for cultural yeah. concern. Yeah. And I'm going, going, like, we've been doing something about this all of our lives. It, yes, and and that is why, I mean, that's also a, a part of why your brand won't die, won't be canceled for any specific thing because you've mm-hmm. never built your brand on momentary fame or yeah. like a woke culture or, you know, you you cared about black culture far and black people far before it was trendy. You cared about the gay community far before it was trendy. You cared about the Asian community far before it was trendy. You're Latin. Mm-hmm. You're an immigrant. Your first language is not English, mm-hmm. you, right? And 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 so I think it's it's the more we see it copy and pasted. And given, I I do absolutely believe you have to talk about these issues, right? Yeah. I think it gets trickier or more complicated when it be, when the bashing happens because you haven't talked about it on a timeline that's necessary. Yeah. But I'm also right? not a person who believes that um, the massive movements toward white fragility and white privilege and the hate of white people and teaching white people to self-hate their own culture and color is... Um, I I am so against making white people feel guilty for being white. Yes, that isn't the answer either. No, it's like this pendulum of horrible to horrible. And, uh, and, 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 and I, you know, I mean, my wife is white. You know? Yes, but she's Irish. And, and so yeah, if you want I to know. look at the history of the Irish, yeah, and, and it doesn't matter. We're not defending no, white people. No, but, but that's actually such an important point because the way people talk about history is as if all white people had privilege yeah. when 
most white people were the peasants. <laughs> you know, they, they were not the yeah. ones with privilege. The Irish didn't come to this country and have privilege. They were leaving a, a depression of a potato famine, and they were considered the 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 the, the bottom dwellers of American culture. And right. So, and so just to just to identify people based on the color of skin is so naive and so superficial. And I don't I, I just can't fully be a, I can't be a part of that. Well, but we are because we still post the things that help people. Because we, because we actually, because there is reality to right, it. Right? Because you can be for people and not have to be against other people. Yes, I did something so dumb. Right, I'm. I you recorded a video, and we were posting it on all the different Instagrams, and I my phone auto corrected, and because I I, I, I post, put it in tags like stop Asian hate, and then instead of protect Asian lives, it auto corrected to protest Asian lives. <laughs> And so Nicole Lewis, who's on our team, who also shoots all of who a lot Asian. of content, who's also Asian. I was like, Nicole, you didn't tell me. She's like, I did. I screenshot it to you. And I was like, oh my gosh. Because I finally like fixed it. But I'm an idiot. And it was really funny. And I'm not going to apologize for it. It was obviously just stupid. Yeah, I so didn't mean we're that. We're actually not protesting Asian lives. We're protecting Asian lives. <laughs> Autocorrect is going to get us canceled. Get us canceled. <laughs> Anyways, uh, we've been talking for close to an hour. There's some topics that I do want to address. Maybe we can hit a, a part two later this week, and we can. I'm going to screenshot these questions, and we can kind of talk through some more. Sure, uh, because on the next podcast, I would actually like to answer the question about what does the Bible say about the separation of church and state. Yeah, I think that's a really important question. I do too. I, I'd like for us to take a little time on and that. The, one. And there's another question that talks about fear. Mm. And and it's from a friend of ours, and so I think it'd be really cool to just like it just says fear. Like, how do you talk about? How do you handle fear? We should have a session about fear, and that would be an important and, conversation. And not to we don't. This is commercial free. It's so crazy. It's really interesting. And I'm not sure if this is like specifically to Anchor. So mm. something I did on the back end with Anchor is that I, which the guys who host us, I switched our genre. Did you notice this from Christian um, faith spirituality to just like humanities, like like something else. Mm -hmm. And so, cause I wanted to see, cause we were like putting up to see if we would get ads so we could put on the podcast. We didn't get hit up one time over like four months. The moment I switched it from Christian, we got all these ad offers. Really interesting. Mm. I don't necessarily think, it, I don't know if it's anchor or if it's like people were like uninterested in. Cause Christians don't buy anything. Right. <laughs> Christians buy a ton. I know. There's Christians great are, customers. Right, great customers. They <laughs> love target, target high risk. <laughs> Um, I'm just kidding. But here's a commercial. I just, I was, it's not a call out on Anchor. However their back end is, I think it's like, it was interesting that people didn't want to advertise on. on it's interesting. It's interesting. Um, oh. Anyways, they ha we have gone offers. Uh, I've said no to all of them mm -hmm. so far. I got to bring some to you. Um, we did sell out of all of your jackets, all of your dreamer coats, Oh, thank you for asking. Yes. Which is uh, really cool. Our, our McManus Gallery came out with uh, chore yeah. coats and- yep. Uh, our dreamer uh, coat and it's really beautiful and really I think beautiful. we sold almost of, completely out in minutes minutes and then we had one that was like a straggler and then we sold it to me and then we sold it our, our late adopter man <laughs> it was great and it's actually my favorite one which is funny I, she so was finally it, adopted she finally, she finally was <laughs> picked up so um we have some more releases coming out with with some other stuff, and I'm really excited. But mm -hmm. but they were beautiful coats, and they're on the website. You haven't checked them out; they're all sold out. But we will be dropping stuff soon. Yeah, I've had people asking me, "Am I going to release any more chore coats?" And the answer is yes. But you have to stay tuned because they'll come when as soon they're as they're ready. Done. As soon as they're ready. <laughs> 
All right, we will talk to you guys soon. Thank you for listening to the Battle Ready Podcast. We're so grateful for every person who watches, who listens, who shares, who posts, who comments, who emails, who supports us on Anchor. Thank you so much. I think we have like over 140, 150 people who support us each uh, month. Thank you guys so much. We have some exciting stuff coming up this year. So if you are listening and you're part of this, this Battle Ready family tribe thing, just stay tuned. We got some more stuff. But go check out the Instagram. We'll talk to you guys soon. See you next week. See you soon.